Ruth 4, verses 13 through 22 this morning. And I'll read it all as we begin. Ruth 4, 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Ruth begins as a story about loss and absence. The book of Ruth begins with Naomi, the widow, who had lost her husband and her two sons to premature death. And it follows her tragedy and recovery from that as she moves back from Moab to Israel with only her daughter-in-law, Ruth, with her. Beyond that, the story of Ruth takes place in the context of the times of the judges. This is a period in Israel in which there was no king in Israel, meaning there, there was absence of leadership. There was no righteous rule. Everyone was a God unto themselves, doing what was right in their own eyes. So there was moral chaos, political chaos in the times of Ruth. And in the midst of that, it focuses on two women who had lost much. It's a story that begins with loss and absence. And I think that's partially why we resonate so much with the story. We as people know what it's like to feel loss and absence, whether small or great. To live is to experience loss. Whether it be uh, the Wi-Fi went out and I don't know what to do with myself anymore, or I lost my phone and I'm lost and I don't know what to do, there's that kind of loss that we deal with uh, more normally. Or there's more significant loss. We lost a job, and seemingly now we've lost purpose, and we don't know how we're going to carry on. We lose compensation. Or there are greater losses that come with just growing old. Losing abilities, senses, uh, health that we once had. I'm learning as the years go by that there can be a certain depression that comes with that as that which once functioned normally and well no longer does, and you feel that loss of youth, not able to do the things you once were able to do. I was actually reading a children's book this week about Monet. Didn't know this. Monet, the famous painter, lost his eyesight in old age. Imagine that. 
the very thing you depended upon most, losing. And of course, to live in this world is to experience loss of life. And the question is, where do we find hope and restoration? Where is the light in all of that? And that's what Ruth is all about. In the midst, in the context of loss and absence, where do we find restoration? And more specifically, how will God restore people who have lost seemingly everything? And that's the question that actually I want to answer today as we look at the end of Ruth, because I believe the end of Ruth answers that question. It's the, the final answer to the problem of Ruth, which is, how will the Lord restore his people? How will the Lord restore the fortunes of his desolate people? The people who are desolate, who have lost everything, who are without. How will the Lord restore the fortunes of his desolate people? We're going to see how God finally restores Naomi and Ruth. And then we'll also see in that that this isn't just a story about Naomi and Ruth. This is actually a story about all of God's people. And that at the end, it projects to something far beyond Naomi and Ruth and answers the question of how is God going to restore all of his people, including us. So this book speaks to our own restoration. We'll see that as we study the end of it. And we'll answer that question, how will the Lord restore the fortunes of his desolate people? And first, verses 13 through the first half of verse 17, we'll see that hope and restoration through a son. God gives Naomi a redeeming son. That's how the Lord will restore his people. God gives Naomi a redeeming son. It might seem strange that I insert Naomi there above all else, but we'll see why that is. God gives Naomi a redeeming son. Look at verse 13. We'll read it again. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Most of you have been with us the whole time through Ruth, but some of you might be new, so just to, I'll try and give a quick synopsis. Uh, here we go. Naomi is our main character of the story, really, of the book of Ruth. and She, along with her husband and two sons, moved from Israel and Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. There, her husband and her sons died, but her sons in Moab married two Moabite women. So Naomi returns back to Israel because she hears there is food. She goes, and as she goes, Ruth decides to stay with her. The other daughter-in-law left, went back to Moab. Ruth clings to her and says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. So there they are back in Israel, but they're a little bit in need. So Ruth goes to work in the fields to provide for them. There, Ruth just so happens to come to the field of a man named Boaz, who is a distant family member, a part of their same clan, as part of the same clan, Boaz has the opportunity, the privilege, even maybe legal custom or at least opportunity to buy back all that belonged to Elimelech, Naomi's 
deceased husband. He can become a redeemer. He can buy back the family. That would include land and Ruth herself. Through some negotiation with somebody else who may have had a claim to it, Boaz secures all that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. And Boaz marries Ruth, or promises to, and that takes us to where we are today. So Naomi, who was without an heir, she had no sons anymore, without a husband, now has a daughter and son-in-law. And Boaz can redeem the whole family and secure their future and provide for them sons and an inheritance and so on. So that's the happy story. It's where we are today. And Boaz here marries, finally, Ruth. And they can live happily ever after. In fact, that kind of is the story of Ruth and Boaz. They get married, and they kind of exit the story. Now, some of you may have been wondering about this, or maybe very few of you, but there's a a lingering issue that may have bothered you, if you know your Old Testament, about the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And that lingering issue is, is it right for Boaz to marry a foreigner, a Moabite? We've kind of skirted past this, but it is potentially an issue. I say that because Deuteronomy 23 says that Moabites and their children are not allowed in the worshiping assembly. There is a prohibition against Moabites by being against being part of the worshiping assembly of Israel. Also, we're going to read later in Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read the rest of your Old Testament, there is a problem that Ezra and Nehemiah address in Israel about them marrying foreign wives and falling into worship of false gods and demons because of that. So there is, throughout the Old Testament, a warning against marrying foreign wives and following their gods. And yet here in Ruth, Boaz is seemingly applauded for marrying Ruth the Moabite. So how do we make sense of that? Well, as far as my understanding goes, in a very real sense, Ruth is no longer a Moabite. That when she decided to go with Naomi and your God will be my God, your people will be my people, she then left Moab behind and became an Israelite. So I take it that when the Old Testament prohibits Israelites from marrying foreign people, it is not so much speaking about blood or ethnicity as it is about faith and religion. They're saying, don't marry those who will worship false gods, who will be uh, part of those gods as people and under the the worship and the um, influence of those gods. It is a faith issue, not as much as an ethnicity blood issue. And when somebody becomes a true Israelite, they become a true Israelite not by changing ethnicity or blood, but by changing their faith and covenant and who they belong to. They become an Israelite by becoming part of the people of faith. And in fact, this is what God desires for Israel to be a nation that is a light to the nations who brings people in and makes them a part of his covenant people. And that happens by faith. Paul says this much in Romans 9. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Meaning it is those who believe the promises of God, those who come to faith, who are actually Abraham's children. So Ruth, I believe, has become 
a child of Abraham. Uh, And I think we see this elsewhere. For example, consider Rahab. There's a reason I bring her up that we'll reveal later. But Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, God told the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, and that was supposed to be a complete wiping out. That was the command. Yet Rahab is spared, and the Israelites are never condemned for that, in fact, applauded for it, that Rahab would not be part of those people wiped out. Why? Because Rahab aligned herself with the Israelites when she helped the spies, and she became an Israelite. Though by blood she may have been Canaanite, by faith she was part of the people of God. Ruth, in the same way, becomes part of God's people. And the wife of Boaz. There are three things, I think, that make uh, marriage official. Three components that have to be there. First, there has to be some type of initial proposal. And there's different customs for that in different cultures. But there has to be some type of proposal, (laughs) a, a proposition made, an agreement come to that the two parties will be married and committed and to one another. Then there must be a public ceremony. Somehow, the the private decision made has to be affirmed in front of other people, whether that be at a church or a courthouse or by the city gate, wherever it is, has to be affirmed publicly. And then lastly, to make a marriage actually a marriage, there has to be physical union of the two people. There must be consummation of the marriage, and that is what happens, and by the grace of God, They give birth to a child. In fact, Scripture gives full credit to the Lord. Look at what it says. And the Lord gave her conception. It's worthy of noting because it's only the second time in the book of Ruth where God directly acts. All throughout the book of Ruth, there's hints that the Lord is working behind the scenes. But now for only the second time, it states that God did this. The first time is in verse 6 of chapter 1. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's the only other time the Lord directly acts as the subject of the verb. He's the one acting when he gave his people food. And now for the second time at the end of the book, he gave conception. It underlines that God is the author of life, that all conception is God-given. It is his direct act. Uh, We've come a long way in our understanding of how childbirth works. There are people like my father. He's a retired perinatologist. He dealt with high-risk pregnancy. That was his field of medicine. So people like him would devote their entire lives to studying and learning how it is that the and child grows and develops in the womb and how to treat the mother and all those things, and we have incredible understanding of all that. And yet, if you ask my father, he would also tell you, there's so much we do not understand about how this happens, and even more so, why. And how, no matter how much we might be able to wrap our heads around scientifically the process of conception, in the end, it is a God-given miracle that life springs up. God is the reason all life exists, because he ordained it so. 
That is true here. We'll think about that more in just a few moments. First, consider the response of the community as this child is born. There's a celebration that revolves around Naomi, of all people. Earlier in the chapter, we heard from the community, and it was all the men dealing with Boaz at the gate. Now, it's all the women who are responding to the birth that Ruth had given in the home. Both of them pray a very similar prayer. Over Boaz, the men at the gate pray, Blessed be your name, may your name be renowned in Israel, in Bethlehem. And now the women, echoing the men, pray a very similar prayer over this child, over this redeemer for Naomi. May his name be blessed and renowned in Israel. Same prayer that was applied to Boaz is applied here to Ruth's child. And they talk about how this child, this um, son, will be a redeemer for Naomi. He'll be a restorer of life and nourisher to her. This child will bring life back to Naomi, who was once, as we saw, bitter, who felt empty. This child will restore her. In fact, will take care of her in her old age. That's the implication of that. Because of the great love of Ruth, who has been better to Naomi than seven sons. That phrase of having seven sons, it's kind of symbolic for great blessing. Seven sons kind of seen as an ideal number. And some of you might go, wow, that's a lot. But that was seen as an ideal number. That's the number of sons that Job had in the beginning of Job. It's a way of saying, you're very blessed. When we were teaching uh, my kids about the omniscience and the bigness of God and how he's everywhere and high above. And uh, My daughter picked up on that and she'd say, God's a thousand big or a thousand tall. Like that's the biggest number she could think of. God's a thousand big. Or, or she would say, Mommy and Daddy, I love you 100, but I love God a thousand. We'd say, yes, that's good. That was... A full number of bigness, of love, of greatness. And in the same way, that's what seven sons is here. That's, that's a, a full blessing. Somebody who had seven sons, that, that's a representative number for having a full blessing. And they're saying, Naomi, your daughter-in-law Ruth has been more than that. She has been more than a thousand big to you. She has incredibly blessed you. Why? Because she's given you a son. Now notice here, this child is given to Naomi. This child, in many senses, became Naomi's child. That's what happens as the child is placed on her lap. That which was once empty now has this child. Look at what verse 16 says. says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. That word nurse, I don't necessarily love as a translation because we think wet nurse, and that's not the case. Here, Naomi's a little old for that, and that wasn't the situation. The word for nurse might better be translated caretaker or even foster mother. It was saying, Naomi became this child's mom in many ways. The word that's used there, the root word, is the same that's used in Esther 2.7, where it talks about Mordecai being the one who raised Esther. Esther 2.7 says he was bringing up, same root word, bringing up Hadassah, 
that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. It's a, a caretaker, a surrogate parent. Naomi will be that for this child. They had given the child to her, and now Naomi herself is redeemed. Naomi has a son, an heir, somebody who will take care of her and somebody that she might pass on. All that belonged to Elimelech, her deceased husband, will go to this child. She was once empty and now full. I don't think that means the pain will ever be completely taken away in this lifetime for Naomi. Those of you who have experienced great loss know that. The pain will linger on. There will be moments where she'd miss her husband and sons. But God has given her restoration. She's no longer empty. The son is given a name. It's actually, he's given a name by the community. I don't know how many of you would go for this. I actually haven't asked Josh and MJ what they're going to name their child, but maybe we could all vote. <laughs> and you'd be okay with that. This happens elsewhere, at least it seems to. Uh, Luke 1, 59 through 60. The birth of John the Baptist says, On the eighth day they... The neighbors and family, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah. So it's all the family and friends around Zechariah, they were going to name his kid. And they, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. So there was input from the community in naming, and the mother says, nope, we have it on higher authority. We're going with a different name. But it indicates that this is not necessarily unheard of, that the community would be involved in the naming of the child, and they name him well. They call him Obed, which means one who serves. This child will serve Naomi, will serve as a redeemer. And that is how the Lord is going to restore and redeem Naomi through a servant son. There's something I don't want us to miss in all of this, that this is how God chooses to redeem and restore his peoples through this gift of life, the birth of a child. It is reflective of how the scriptures and how God himself views the birth of children. It is always an unequivocal blessing. Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Many of you know this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And scripture speaks to this reality that children are always a gift from the Lord and a blessing from the Lord. It doesn't mean that they're the only blessing that the Lord gives, nor does it mean that if you don't have children, you aren't blessed. But, unequivocally, children are a blessing from God. And I wonder if we always have the same perspective. To borrow modern terminology, maybe this will muddy the waters, but I'd say, I wonder if we are pro, as pro-life as God is. Are we as pro-children as God is? I would submit to you that actually that we are not. There's no way we can be because we are not perfect as he is. 
But there is a way in which God is pro-life that we, I don't think we can begin to fathom. He is pro-kid, pro-child in a way that we can't fully understand. And certainly that goes beyond being against abortion, which if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and if you adhere to the scriptures unequivocally without uh, argument, you must be against elective abortion. Let me be clear on this, that if you believe what scripture says about life and its sanctity, and even laws given in the Old Testament and the heart of scripture, that you cannot be also for the murder of the unborn. Like those two things are incongruous. But to have God's view of children goes beyond that, well beyond that. It means to fully embrace children as blessings and as gifts. And boy, does that convict sometimes when you're a parent of young children. But to see them always as gifts. And I'm going to step on toes, and I say this, I don't want to offend or condemn, but I do want to cause you to think. As you think about kids and child birthing and raising up kids, and if you were to go before God and pray to him and say, what should I do with my life? If you're a young couple, you're trying to plan out your family, and you say, God, what should I do? Should I have more income and a bigger home and devote myself to promotions, or should I bring another image bearer of God into the world? What do you think the Lord's response would be? Like, where would your priorities, how would they line up with God's in that? I'm not saying you have to fill 12 passenger vans. I wouldn't wish that upon everybody. And I also recognize the hurt and the pain for those who have health conditions or are not able to have more kids. And I understand complications that come with health challenges. But I am asking you to think what is worthy of your investment. And I propose to you that many of us will pursue all sorts of things much dumber, a much greater waste of our time than having our lives devoted to the raising up and bringing life into the world. And I say that with full conviction because that is what God is about. It is how he redeems this world. It was his first command to his people. All the way back in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. It's a command he gives to Noah as he restarts people. Be fruitful and multiply. It is part of how we bring praise and honor and glory to our God. We fill the earth with his image bearers and are about the proliferation of life and all that that means. So that's what God is about. He loves people. It's his agenda to fill the world with them, to create a people for himself. That is why he redeems Naomi through a son. Through the birth of a redeemer. And it's not just how he's going to restore Naomi, it's how he's going to restore all of his people. We see that in the second half of verse 17 through 22. First, God gives Naomi a redeeming son, and then 
God gives Israel a royal son. And that's where the Ruth ends. God gives Israel a royal son. I find it fascinating that it doesn't end at verse 17. I mean, you could end the story there. Naomi has a child. Ruth and Boaz are married. Everything's good. What, what's left to tell? But the scripture goes on because there's a bigger story that it pays attention to. This has wider implications. God gives Israel a royal son. Verse 17. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And we end with a genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And with that, we see the full scope of the story of Ruth. It was never just about a family in Bethlehem. It was a story about Israel. It connects back to the patriarchs of Israel. This genealogy goes back to Perez, who was the son of Tamar and Judah. Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the founding fathers of Israel. This story goes back there, so it's connecting to the birth of the nation, and goes all the way down to King David. It's not a complete genealogy. There are names and generations missing, and there's names in here that we might not recognize. There's a few that stand out. There's Nashon, who's an interesting guy. He was a contemporary of Moses. Exodus 6.23 tells us he's the brother-in-law of Aaron. Numbers 1.7 tells us that Nashon was the leader of the tribe of Judah in Moses' time. It might be where their family got so much standing and even wealth. But he was, one of the head, he was the head of the tribe of Judah in Moses' time, and he helped Moses in administration. So there's an interesting character. But the real interest in all this genealogy is where it ends. It ends with Jesse and his son, David, who would be the king of Israel. It should not shock us that this is where the story ends. The author's been setting this up. Remember, in the beginning, he told us, it's the time of the judges. There was no king in Israel. So the story is introduced into tension. If the story is really going to be resolved, it has to resolve not only the tension of the family drama, it has to resolve the tension of the national drama. There, there was no king. It's the time of the judges. So to resolve that tension, we must have a king who will come. Only then will the story be resolved. And in fact, in the description of Elimelech and his sons, there's a hint to David, if you really, really know your Bible, Right? So in the beginning, Elimelech and his two sons are described as, in verse 1-2 of Ruth, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. That's how they're described. They're from the family of Ephrathah and the town of Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, if you really know your Bible, you'd hear that and you'd say, oh yeah, that reminds me of another person in the Old Testament. And you would say, oh yes, of course, First Samuel 17-12. We all know that, we've all memorized it says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse. It's the exact same phrase and same description, and the author is connecting you. From the same family, same town, this book is preparing us to be introduced to David. And why is David so important? Because he is the king of Israel. He is the one who had solved the problem of the chaos and the enemies who kept conquering and invading. David would establish peace in Israel. He would reign and rule. 
conquering all of Israel's enemies, and he would prepare the way for a temple to be built in Israel so that God could dwell with his people. David was the king they were all hoping for that would rule and reign. And all of that would happen because Ruth happened to walk on a field. David, the great king, would come because she happened to have the gumption to propose to Boaz. And Boaz happened to have the kindness to redeem her. And through these small, insignificant events, God would bring a king who would save his people. On January 6, 1850, in Newtown, Colchester in England, a pastor of a Methodist church in Artillery Street preached a sermon from Isaiah 45:22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. In and of itself, that's not all that remarkable. Lots of sermons have been preached in lots of towns in England. The only reason we or I can know that that sermon was preached in that town, in that church, on that street, on that day, and I'm not even sure who the pastor is, The only reason we know that is because that was the sermon that converted Charles Spurgeon at 15 years old. He was traveling and he just so happened to turn into that church because of a snowstorm. And on that day, an anonymous pastor preached a simple sermon from a not very well-known passage. And Spurgeon was converted and he became one of the greatest evangelistic ministers the Western world has ever known. And that happened because God does crazy big things through anonymous, insignificant people who are faithful to him. People like Ruth, Naomi and Boaz, who might not have much going on otherwise, and yet the Lord chooses to use them to do great things. It might feel like we live in the times of the judges where moral chaos reigns and we look all around us and we watch the news and we're discouraged and we look at our own hearts and we're more discouraged. And we look at our own lives and we we don't know what's going on. And then we read the story of Ruth and we're reminded of what the Lord can do through a few cast-offs living in a chaotic world. Has he forgotten about his people? Will he restore their fortunes? God's doing more than we could ever imagine. And he'll restore through a redeeming son, through a royal son, King David. Give me just a few more minutes. That's the good news of Ruth. But the good news of Ruth isn't good enough if we just stop there. Why? Because as great as David is, the nation will still need somebody better. David may come and establish peace for a time, but if you follow his heirs, the kings that follow, the nation will just crumble again. David, in his line, will fail. 
So God speaks promises of another, a greater king to come. One, just as Obed would point to David, there is one even greater that David would point to. And Jeremiah 39 says that God will raise up one for Israel, whom God calls David their king. There will be another David. Ezekiel 34, 24 through 25 says, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, one who serves, that's Obed's name, my servant, David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. God will restore and protect his people through another David that will come. Hosea 3.5 promises, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this hope that David is still coming. He's been here, but his line has failed, so we need David still to come. So there's this expectation, anticipation in Israel that another David will come. And that's why there are those who are going to cry out to Jesus as he performs his miracles and his ministry. They'll cry out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it is ironic that the one who cries that out specifically is a blind man, Bartimaeus, who has the ability to see this Jesus is David's son. He is the David to come. And just like Ruth ends with a genealogy, Matthew begins with one and connects this story to Jesus, the great David, the king. We won't have time for it, we don't have time for it, but if you examine Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1, you read the family history of Jesus, you're going to see familiar names. You'll find names like Perez and Judah and Tamar. Tamar, the redeemed widow. You'll see Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon, and you'll see names like Boaz and Ruth. You'll see a Moabite widow. in the family of Jesus our Lord. And you'll see that Boaz has this direct relative named Rahab, who's his mother. And maybe it was his grandmother or his mother, but you read that and you see, well, no wonder Boaz is so willing to take in a foreigner for a wife and make her part of the people of God. And through all these names and all these generations and ups and downs and trials, you'll see that God keeps his promise to his people. It's not like the game of telephone where the message gets lost along the way. You have a record here of God's faithfulness that he will bring redemption through his son. Not just a redeeming son, not just a royal son, but a righteous son who can save people from their sins. And that's how the Lord restores his people through family redemption, through national redemption, then through cosmic redemption. The birth of a son who is a servant. One who will restore his people through his obedient life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection to power and rule, Jesus Christ the Son. He is our hope for restoration in the midst of absence and loss and pain. He is our Redeemer. Would you pray with me?
And Father, we thank you for this book, this story of um, really your sovereign care for your people. That through ups and downs and through pain and loss and trial, that you do not let your people go. You do not go back on your promises, but you promise to restore and you make good on that promise in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that all the way back in Ruth, we had uh, the signs there pointing to him, that you were laying this out and using uh, the most unlikely people. And that in that, you were including people who might be cast off by others, but you were showing mercy to many. We thank you that you love your people, that you love to restore your people, and we pray that we would have the same love the same mercy, the same compassion, the same um, commitment to goodness that you have shown in your word and in your son. And may we praise your name, Lord, forever and ever as heirs and children of God. Amen.